You are listening to a Cold Lake Community Church podcast. We hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect. Wow. Well, you know that song just really began to spark some huge appreciation for the grace of God in my life. The grace of God, it's something that we can't earn. It's something that we don't deserve. But it's something that God chooses to give to us freely. And all we got to do is receive it. We just got to say, yes, I receive it, Jesus. And we can have freedom in our lives from all those things that Cynthia mentioned and more. You know, today when we were singing about God's love for us, something that stuck out to me is that God's love for us says so much more about who God is than than really about who we are. Because none of us deserve God's love. None of us have done anything to earn it. The Bible says that all have fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. There's not one perfect person that ever walked this life except for Jesus Christ. You know, it makes me think about how easily it is to make life and our spiritual walk about ourselves. Sometimes, you know, and how often I have this tendency to want to make my spiritual life about me, about Mark. I don't know if you have the same problem in your life, that sometimes your eyes aren't always focused on Jesus, but are focused on you, on your thoughts, on your feelings, on your opinions, on your wants, on your desires. But ultimately, the Christian life is not about these things. More importantly, it's about what God thinks, his opinion, and aligning our life with God's ways. Life is not about what we want, but it's trusting in God that he may do as he wants in and through our life as we come to know him better. And when we do, we learn that following him will ultimately bring us the most satisfying and fulfilling life that we could ever live. You know, I think all of us to some extent in life will be familiar with this this feeling within us that we're not quite who we should be. That there's a gap between where we are now and where we could be operating at our highest potential. That there's a gap between who we are, and how we could be living our lives. You know, that gap is the brokenness of humanity. That gap is sin, and it's a gap that has been brought between man and God. But it's a gap that becomes filled by Christ when we choose to walk by the Spirit in a deep abiding relationship with Him, laying aside our selfish ambitions and choosing to follow Him with everything that we have. You know, if you're in this room today and you're, you're struggling with relational strife, depression, sadness, addiction, a complete lack of self-control, maybe anger or bitterness, deep insecurity and anxiety, God sees you this morning. You know, sometimes when darkness seems like it's plaguing us, we think that our greatest need is the temporary escape of that thing that is hurting us in the moment. But today I want to tell you that it's not actually your greatest need. Your greatest need is not more money. It's not even a new job or, or to divorce your spouse that's that thorn in your side sometimes. Your greatest need is not 
that your children would listen to you better or that your wife would stop nagging you or that your husband would stop being lazy and inconsiderate and finish one of the many unfinished projects around the house. Every single person, every man, every woman, every child, the greatest need is the need of a savior. Because we live in a broken, fallen world and we are broken and fallen until we know Christ. You know, Matthew, in the book of Matthew, it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. You see, the first thing is Christ and second come all these other things. First comes Christ. Second comes all these other things. You know, the last um, few weeks that I've spoken, I've been speaking from the book of Colossians. It's a letter that Paul wrote to a church and a group of churches that he had never actually stepped foot uh, in. He'd never been there in person. But he wrote letters to them to encourage them and to help keep them on the right path. You know, what I love about this letter that Paul writes to the Colossians almost 2,000 years ago is that it directs our attention away from ourselves and towards the person of Jesus Christ, towards the head of the church. You know, the emphasis is on Christ and how all things actually revolve around him. And it's about the fullness of God in the person of Jesus and then it looks at how we then are made complete in him. You know, many people are trying to be made complete and fill that hole, that gap in their life with many different things. For men, it's often our work. It's often our hobbies. Sometimes it's our toys. Sometimes it's relationships. But really, there's only one way for that gap to be filled, and that is through Jesus, Jesus Christ, through having a relationship with God through the person of Jesus. You know, Colossians 1.17 says, All things have been created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is like the superglue of our universe. And the amazing thing is once you get a hold of him, he sticks. I don't know if you've ever got some super glue on your fingers and actually done one of these and can't get your fingers apart. I know I've done that many times. Many times. But when God comes into your life, he means to dwell there forever. It's not a temporary thing. He's not just like here one day and gone the next. He wants to reside with you forever and ever. And verse 19 then says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All of the fullness of God dwells in the person of Jesus. The God-man. The God-man. Fully man. Fully God. To my mystery and a miracle, I don't fully understand how this works. But I'm so glad that God is such a big God that I can't fully figure him out. It would alarm me a little bit if I could fully comprehend the fullness of God that is in the person of Jesus Christ. But we can't. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We only get to see in part For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him, it says in verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amazing. Reconciliation. It's a word that we actually hear quite a bit these days. Have any of you heard of like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, things like that? You know, reconciliation is a word that means it's a restoration of something that's broken. 
And often it's a relationship. Often when we talk about reconciliation with First Nations, it's often the relationship between First Nations and the government of Canada and the peoples of Canada. The people that call themselves Canadians, that call this their home. But here it says that through Jesus, all things would be reconciled. All things. Not just the human soul. All things on heaven and on earth. God came to restore more than just a broken heart, but your whole being. God wants all of you to be transformed. Your body, your heart, your mind, your emotions, your inner life. He wants to renew the whole package of who is you. And it says that he does this by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You know, when sin entered the world, it brought with it a lot of brokenness. It severed the relationship between man and God. And if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't have a personal relationship with God right now, who has never received Christ into their life, never chosen to follow him, I want you to listen. If there's anyone here who's struggling in their faith because they feel like sin has caught you up again for the hundredth time and you're not sure how you can move forward with God, I want you to listen up. If you think you've got it made and the fullness of God has been fully exemplified in you, I want you to listen up. You see, often I think people misunderstand the message of the gospel of Christ. You know, there are many people that still think that God's approach to us that don't have everything together perfectly is that God's message is, I'm angry with you and I'm against you. You've chosen to ignore me, to curse me, maybe even mock me. You do the wrong things. You say the wrong things. You have the wrong motivations for so many things. And they think that God is saying, you are a sinner and I desire to punish you. It doesn't matter if you've been saved 40 years or 40 minutes. The enemy will try to trip you up on this. And the way you know if this is an issue, if you've been a Christian for a long time, is that you slip up and you feel guilty to the point that you want to hide in shame. You want to disconnect from the local church and your Christian friends. Or you want to put on a mask and pretend like everything is wonderful, look wonderful on the outside, and be dying and rotting on the inside. Neither are good. Neither are healthy. Our greatest need is that of a savior to put the broken pieces of our life back together and restore us back to relationship with God and reconcile us in him, in all areas of our life. No, God is not today saying those things. Today, is, God is actually saying something entirely different to the sinner and to us here in this room. He says, I am moved with love and compassion for you. I desire that you would know me, that I would be your God, and that you would live life abundantly. Jesus says, I've already borne your punishment. I paid the penalty for your sin. I've canceled your debt. It's paid in full. Jesus has come to me, and I'll give you life. I'll give you peace. I'll give you rest. I'll give you purpose. I'll give you love so that you would experience wholeness fully and completely. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Peace has been made. 
in Christ towards you? Will you accept it? Will you walk in it? Will you embrace the grace of God in your life today? Will you trust him with everything? The rest of this morning, we're going to be looking at Colossians 2, the beginning part of Colossians 2. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Colossians 2. If you have your online Bible on your phone, when I see it out, I'm assuming you're reading your Bible or making notes, not on Facebook or texting. So don't feel bad if I catch you on your phone, because I assume that's what you're doing, right? But it's okay. I understand. It's the 21st century. A lot of you guys use your phones for everything. Sometimes I even I'll slip my phone out and make some notes or some thoughts, because I don't carry a journal around with me everywhere I go, but my phone goes with me everywhere. You know, commentary, actually, I'll read Colossians 2.1 here first. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those of you who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. So here we see Paul is writing to the Colossians, but he's also including here the people from the church of Laodicea. It was a city north of Colossae, and uh, it was a very affluent city. You know, a couple weeks ago, I talked about how Colossae had been a very affluent city. There was part of a trade route, and then the Romans changed the trade route farther north. And it basically decimated the economy of Colossae, and they went through some really hard years. Laodicea at this time was not having that problem. They were not an economically depressed city. They were rich. They were wealthy. They were affluent. And they had knowledge. Oh, did they have knowledge. You had the Roman knowledge of the world, which was a bit of an arrogant knowledge that we know how to do life the best way and therefore is to everyone else's advantage that we conquered them and showed them how to do life the right way. You know, sometimes when I sit and I hear some of the new stuff and the UN debating whether they're going to go into a country, which leader they're going to support, which regime they're going to support and overthrow, makes me think almost a little bit like the Romans. You know, it's to our advantage that we go and meddle and choose the winner and be the kingmaker. Because we know what's best for you. Anyhow, just a thought. I don't know. That was not in my notes. But... Um, the point that I'm making here is that it was a very affluent city and had lots of knowledge. You know, you had influences from, from Greece, and they were very philosophical. The Greeks believed that they could figure all things out, that all they needed was to have the right philosophy, the ways of doing things, and they could, they, they basically idolized intellectuality, if that's even a word. The intellectual pathways to figuring things out of, of all things could be figured out through the brain. You know, in very many ways, the city of Laodicea parallels very much with Western society. Even the church of, of Laodicea is similar to the church within the Western world. You know, here Paul is writing, he's saying that I struggle on your behalf. A couple of things I want to say about that. One, I think he might be struggling because he hears of things that maybe aren't right, and he can't go in person to help them. And so this letter is the best that he can do. He can pray that God would move in their midst and that this letter would find them and that they would be able to draw from it wisdom and knowledge to be able to live out a life that is glorifying to God and impactful for the kingdom of God in a healthy way. But Paul clearly had a personal struggle writing this letter. One reason that I think Paul is actually struggling is because he knows of a spiritual lack within these churches. And he's sending a letter to encourage them since he's unable to be there in person. And one reason I think this is because what Jesus has to say about the spiritual condition of the church of Laodicea in Revelation 3. Now, for some of you that don't know what the book of Revelation is about, it's the last book of the Bible. And it was written by John in his old age on the island of Patmos. And he has a vision. An angel tells him to write all these things down that I'm about to tell you. And then he sees Jesus, the glorified Jesus in the flesh. And he sees his eyes burning like fire. 
and his face glowing like the sun. And Jesus has a message for the seven churches of Asia Minor, which he writes and records in the book of Revelation. What John has to record about Laodicea, what Jesus has to say about this church is recorded in Revelations 3, 15 to 22. And it says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, I've become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And you do not know how wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked you are. I advise you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I salve is like an eye ointment that you put on your eyes. To whom I love, I reprove and discipline. He says in verse 19, therefore be zealous and repent. You see, the Laodicean church was blind to God at work in their life, in the life of others. Why? Probably because they were busy doing other things. The Laodiceans were not lazy. They were instead distracted by the business of life and the world, getting ahead in life with everything rather than being involved in the things of God. God says that he wants them to be zealous, not at making money, not at building houses, at planning all their next vacations and filling their social calendars, but God wants them to be zealous for him. A Laodicean Christian, I think likely pretended to be righteous. They'd built up a facade. Externally, he looked like a good guy and looked righteous too. But all the while, inside, he was something else. He was living a double life. You know, this is one of the Laodiceans' problems, that he's so focused on other things, often his own well-being, that he misses God. Since he has everything all figured out and all his needs met, all of his desires met, he in his heart of hearts believes, does he really need God? I wonder sometimes when we live in a society of so much affluence where we can do so much for ourselves, if sometimes this attitude doesn't slip into our lives. That how much do we depend on God and how much do we depend on our checkbook and other things to get by in life? What's your spiritual condition this morning? Paul continues. I'll just read it from the beginning. For I want, to know, want you to know how great struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself. What's interesting is the words that were used in this passage of scripture. Look at the words. Wealth, understanding, knowledge. You know, Paul is addressing some of the very same issues that Jesus is addressing in Revelations 3. Talking about wealth and understanding and knowledge. And that all these things ultimately come down to Jesus himself. You know, the Bible says that fear is the beginning of all knowledge and wisdom. Here, we're a people that depended on a lot of wisdom and a lot of knowledge from the world and from other cultures and different philosophies of life. And here Paul is saying, don't be distracted by those things. 
remember that you've been knit together in love. And I think he's encouraging them to attain all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding what salvation means, resulting in the true knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, that there's no such thing as a wealthier man than a man who has Jesus in his heart, that lives and walks and abides with Jesus and walks in and by the Spirit. And all accumulation of knowledge and wisdom is in Christ himself. Colossians 2.3, he asserts this again. He says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you think it's possible that these people were missing it? That they were making it about other things? That Jesus might have initially been primary and then all of a sudden somehow he became a secondary thing? And the pursuit of knowledge and lofty thinking and stuff became maybe the primary pursuit. It's worth pointing out that at this time in history, like I already said, the Romans had a superiority complex. They wanted to rule the whole world, while the Greeks highly prized intellect and believed all answers to life's serious questions could be discovered through the study of philosophy. This area within Asia Minor was filled with people from all over the known world. There were many forms of philosophies floating around in this region at this time. And there were so many ideas competing for people's attention. Christianity is not one more form of philosophy, but it's reality. The person of Jesus is reality. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. You know, these things impact local churches immensely, and it did here as well. And Paul is restating again and again how wisdom, knowledge, and understanding are found in Christ. And that the most important measure that we must evaluate our wealth and our health is by our deep abiding relationship with Jesus. And this leads Paul then to write this in Colossians 2, 4 to 5. I say this so that no one will delude you with pervasive and persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nonetheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good dis discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. You know, when I'm reading this, I wonder, you know how sometimes people will affirm something in you that's not fully developed yet? You know, like when you're trying to encourage your children to get better at something? You know, and like, you know, before Sophia could color in the lines, you know, I'd be like, great job, Sophia. You're doing such a good job. Look how you got that, that line right in the right spot. Meanwhile, the rest was everywhere else. I think Paul might be prompting them a little bit. I think this is already an issue in the church. And he's writing to confront this saying, don't be deluded with persuasive arguments of worldly thinking. Even though I'm not physically with you, I'm with you in spirit. And so have good discipline and stability in your faith. Don't drift away. Next verse, 2.6, he says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Walk in him. You know, sometimes I think we present the gospel in such a way we just have to receive Jesus and then everything's wonderful and that's all we got to do is just receive it and then life's perfect. That is just the beginning of the journey. The day that we choose to receive Christ, say, God, I want you. I need you desperately. Come into my life. Forgive my sins. I believe in you. And I'm going to trust you every day, every day forward. It's the beginning of that journey. It's not the end. So therefore, we have to walk in him, walk in him by the spirit. You know, in Bible times, the way that people got around was by walking. If you were wealthy or in the military, you might have rode a horse. But there's no shortcut to spiritual growth. It's only that which the spirit does in your life each and every day in the accumulation of those things that you walk out in your relationship with God every day that grows you. 
You know, some people confuse the Christian walk with this emotional experience where we take off like a rocket into outer space, you know, that somehow it's like the Christian life's lived up in the clouds, you know, somewhere where it's not even relevant to our day-to-day life anymore. It's just like this idea, this wonderful idea that seems wonderful, but seems unpegged to reality. You see, the Christian walk is not up in the clouds. It's not just a philosophy. It's Christ in me every moment of every day walking with Christ in the everyday ordinary parts of our life. Even the monotonous parts of our life that we think God would be so bored if he was here right now. Trust me, he is not bored. He is not bored with the most boring parts of your life. He's excited every time you include him in what you were doing. Christianity is not just a great idea to make us feel better about life or simply a crutch or another great philosophy that gives us one of many ways of directing meaning and purpose in our life. We attain meaning and purpose in our life because we now know our creator and we begin to become like him and we begin to understand who we are in that process because our identity is so linked to who God is and we become who we are when we become like Christ. You know, one thought that my wife and I were talking about is sometimes we have this like archetype of a person that we think this is what the ideal Christian is. And if all people are living by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, they're all going to start to look alike. But the reality is, is when we begin to walk by the Spirit, begin to grow in the things of God and the kingdom of God, and we begin to conform and the sanctification process, becoming more like God takes place, we don't all begin to look alike. And the reason is because we weren't all created to do the same things. We are the body of Christ. Some of us are a toe. Some of us are an elbow. When you begin to follow Christ and he begins to conform you to his image, you're going to look like the best elbow, not the best toe. It would be a very dysfunctional body if we were all just one big blob, a pile of toes. You're not going to be walking anywhere because you need a foot and a leg. And so don't confuse us all looking the same or the expression of the way that we express our faith and worship God to be in perfect alignment and look exactly the same because it's not going to. Because you have unique characteristics of who God is that God has placed into you. And when you become more like Christ, what happens is those get exaggerated. We don't begin to mesh and just look all the same. God's diversity is seen when we are all walking in relationship with him. But there's this wonderful unity that happens in the spirit. You know, the word university actually means like unification within diversity. Universities were about taking and discussing all these diverse thoughts, bringing them all together, but being unified in purpose of trying to seek truth. That's what we are. We come from diverse backgrounds. We come with diverse skill sets, diverse giftings and purposes for the kingdom of God, and he brings us all together. And as we grow in him, he develops a righteousness in us that allows us to look more like him and become more like who he created us to be, which will look different for each one of us. But the thing that will be the same is the fruit of the Spirit. The things that will be developed in us are love. It's the thing that knits us together as a church. Joy. Peace, because he is the Prince of Peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. When we are all walking in the Spirit together in unity, that, that is what we can look for as the sign. Not how gifted I am, not how wonderful of a speaker I am, not how well I can play the guitar or the sitar, but what is the fruit that's being developed in your life? And is it creating unity or division? 
The Spirit of God always brings unity. God's Spirit is with us every day, everywhere we go. But we need to spend time with God in His Word, in prayer, communicating with Him throughout each and every day. And over the next weeks and months, my hope is that we'll be bringing practical tools and suggestions of how to do that, of what it means, some pictures of what it might look like to walk in an abiding relationship with Jesus and certain practices that we can bring to our life every single day to be able to know God better and grow deeper with him. You know, the Christian life is lived right here on earth in the everyday moments of our lives at home, when we're with our families, when we're at work, when we're at church too, in the car, when we're going about our weekly chores, shopping, doing housework, and it's the redemptive plan of God throughout history to restore us every relationship so that God would pour out his love on us and in us that we would be with God forever and be effective for the kingdom of God in every area of our life. Colossians 2.7 says, Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed, be overflowing with gratitude. You know, as I was reading and, and, and praying and contemplating um, this text here, you know, a little in my heart, I was feeling, you know what, maybe there's a lot of us that have some shallow roots. You know, when I think about the Church of Laodicea, I think some of them were in very poor spiritual condition, but they thought they were doing all right. It becomes very apparent when you read what Jesus is saying to them in Revelations 3. So I think for us, we need not to be deceived. We need to be able to check our heart and say, what is my spiritual condition this morning? You know, it could be because of completing beliefs within us. You know, maybe we've been deceived by some worldly philosophies or psychology. Maybe some days we come and gather as Christians and it's more like a dead form of religion, a superficial spirituality when we come and start doing church and our heart's not really in it anymore but we don't want to get that awkward phone call, I haven't seen you in four weeks, what's going on? So we keep it up. You know, Christianity is so much more than doing church. And faith is not about modifying our outside appearance to look more spiritual than we actually are. And compromise by being willing to secretly live in internal turmoil while looking wonderful on the outside. You know, something that Paul touches over and over and over in his letters to the churches is gratitude. He says, salvation brings great respect and reverence for God and immense joy and gratitude for the new life that we have. And this is because God does not just come into our life to make our outer world better, to make the superficial parts of life better but he comes to actually transform our entire being and our entire life. You know, he came to restore all of you. God doesn't come into you and just renovate your kitchen and leave the rest of your house in total disarray. That is not his intent. That is not what God does. He came to restore all of you, to reconcile all all things to himself, all of creation, and that includes the inner world, the private part of you that I can, can't see or hear or touch, but is the real you. The you that you leave this room and walk out and that's who you are. That's who you talk to when you have no one else to talk to. That's the part of you that Jesus wants to transform. And you can't trick Jesus. He knows. He knows what's going on inside of you. You see, the amazing thing is that God does not just do a little DIY inner work in you. You know, church is not a self-help program designed to make you feel better about life. But the Bible actually says that 
the Christian life is a new birth. It's so significant. It's like being born again. It's, it's a spiritual rebirth. God actually gives us an entirely new nature. The Bible says he makes us new. But this doesn't mean that there's not a shadow of our former selves that, ling- that doesn't linger, that we don't carry around with us. You know, it's there. But the amazing thing is we're no longer slaves to it. Nor do we have to submit to it, nor obey it. You know, by the Holy Spirit, we can walk in freedom. We can be, as we sung this morning, sons and daughters of God. We break free from the shadow when we renew our minds by the Word of God. When we live and enact the Word of God in our lives every day. Not just being hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. And when we learn to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit within us. You know, another way of saying that is it's being obedient to God. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive, once again through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, but rather according to Christ. I think Paul's getting on something here. There are deceptive philosophies that try to pull people away from the person of Jesus Christ. Where all of a sudden we sit down, we think we're feasting, having our meal, and God one day might say, look, you're... What the main part of your meal, your primary course, was yourself and your selfish ambition and the philosophies of man and the traditions of man. And you made me the side dish. Jesus needs to be our main, not the side dish. You know, there's always been this danger within Christianity you know, where the church seems to lean towards one of two directions, you know, that our faith sometimes is likened to just a a one philosophy like any other. And sometimes it becomes liberalized, you know, and it's this, we almost view Christianity like, oh, it's just a great idea that you can use to pick off the shelf and apply or not, and when you're done with it, you can put it back on the shelf and choose something else. Christianity is not like an Epicure show, home show. It's not, it's not just picking and choosing which spices work in the moment and thinking that's wonderful. No. The fullness of God dwells in Him. It's about Him. Not about our personal preferences. It's not about what we want. It's about the person of Jesus Christ and us becoming like Him and surrendering our life to Him. You know, sometimes if, if Christianity becomes liberalized and just a philosophy a way of life that's unpegged. You know, likewise, sometimes Christianity can become a ritual and we can lose sights of the origins and the significance of the traditions that we practice every day. There's nothing wrong with tradition. There's nothing wrong with ritual. We have little patterns of the ways that we do church here at Cola Community Church. And that means that we have a culture. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we do things and we go through the motions of church, not reflecting on why we do it and becomes dead to us is no longer meaningful, it's a problem. So we're not a philosophy. Christianity is not meant to be a dead ritual or tradition. We've lost sight of its significance. But we are to pave a path in the middle. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him the fullness of deity dwells, in bodily form, and in him you've been made complete. You know, the Christian life simply means this. I have Christ. I am in him. The Spirit of God lives in me, and I'm going to walk in relationship with God every day. That's at the heart of it. And that God tells us not to do it alone. He tells us to do it in community because we need to support one another to become who we are and to be able to impact our community for the kingdom of God. See, we are to be deeply rooted in Christ. But it's hard to do that if we don't put God first. If we consistently put him on the back burner. Is Christ the main course of your life or is he the side dish this morning? As long as we choose to make the world and our selfish desires the main dish, we are going 
to being spiritually malnourished and hungry. But Jesus is the bread of life. He is the living water, the Bible says, and he is what satisfies. But when we make Jesus not the primary thing, we have a version of religion and we're still thirsty. We're still hungry. It doesn't seem to satisfy. And if that is your walk right now, I think something might be a little off. Maybe Jesus needs to be put back at the focus, at the helm again. Maybe there's some competing things in you that are competing for that place of lordship in your life. Jesus wants to be Lord of all of you. To close, I might just have, uh, thank you, come up and play some music. But I'd like to close today by reading the latter part of the letter to the Laodiceans, to the church. So the beginning part, you know, Jesus says, are you hot, are you cold? Actually, you're neither. You're lukewarm. Nobody likes something lukewarm. Lukewarm coffee, there might be a few of you that like lukewarm coffee. I have no idea why. I think it's because you're, you just don't want to spend money and go get a new one. That's what I think. Oh, it's, it's only been here two days. The cream's not totally curdled yet. Um, no, don't do that. Exactly, it's gross. Nobody likes that. Even God doesn't like lukewarm. Amen. Bruce, you either hot or cold. He says you are so secure in what you have. You're so secure in your bank account and your wealth, and that's what you put your real security in. And it's not me. It's so easy to do that, isn't it? But Jesus doesn't just leave them there. Revelation 3, 20 to 22, he closes with this. This is the end of their letter. And it says this, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him. I will dine with him and he with me. Jesus doesn't leave you at the door. He's still knocking, church. He wants to come in and dine with you. He wants you to be satisfied. Know the fullness of of God so that we could say it's about him it's about Jesus it's about Christ in me the hope of glory then he says he who overcomes I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne The Bible says that we are co-heirs with Christ. We are going to get to share in his glory. In a way, I guess we'll be little mini rulers of something. But just as Jesus gets to sit on the throne at the right hand of the Father, so will we get to join him. What an amazing thing. And he ends with this, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What is the Spirit saying to you this morning? Are you hearing some knocking right now? You know what, to end and close off our service, going to ask that we just take 30 seconds and we just reflect on the spiritual condition of our life and be honest I'm not going to ask you about it just between you and God and the question to ask yourself is this what is what or who is first in my life and if we can honestly can't say it's Jesus what do we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us tonight?
and to show us how we can return to our first love. Is another way of the Bible saying, come back to what's really important, the person of Jesus. Not all these secondary things, but the person of Jesus and the fullness of God. For in him all fullness of deity dwells, and in him you've been made complete. You are complete in him. Even if it doesn't seem like it right now, you are made complete. The fullness of God dwells in him, and he dwells in you. So I'm going to give you 30 seconds to think about that, and then I'm going to invite you to come up to the front. And maybe what I'll do is that if you specifically want prayer for something specific, if you could come more to the right side of the stage over here, if you want prayer, if you want interaction from our prayer team and from myself. But if you need to come up and you just need to kneel at the altar and you need to have a moment with God, you're welcome to do that. And we'll, we'll bring this side of, of our altar this morning will be personal time. So if you're standing over here, I'm not going to come pray for you. Our prayer team won't pray for you unless you come over here and indicate that you physically want prayer. Sound good? All right. So what's first and foremost in our life? Take a moment, think about that, and then you're welcome to, to worship God, to come up for prayer, or to continue talking to Jesus. This is a formal dismissal, so when you have to go get your kids, you're welcome to do that too. You have been listening to Cold Lake Community Church Podcast. We hope that you've been blessed by this teaching from Cold Lake Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families connect.